If you would, open your Bibles to Ephesians 5. While you do that, uh, you've heard reference made of it. You may have seen a slide go by. Um, But this week, uh, on Thursday evening, there's um, a group of churches, uh, predominantly on the south side of St. Petersburg, that has gathered over the years. Um, But prior to the pandemic, it was in seven different neighborhoods. They'd meet in seven different outdoor locations. It went down to one following that, and then this year it's back up to three. Uh, but where, where churches are gathering just to, to, to go into a public place in those communities. They call it a tent revival, but the idea behind it is to go into a public sphere and declare that Christ is Lord. Uh, frankly, they're tired of their children's getting shot, children getting shot and killed. They're tired of, of, of the, the things that have impacted them, and they're saying, no, no more, Christ is Lord. And... Um, it is an opportunity for us to join with them to find, as you've heard me say when we've talked about gospel unity, um, a metaphorical communion table with our brothers and sisters that we might not otherwise find ourselves worshiping with. And uh, it's an awesome opportunity to do just that. And so any time this week from, from Monday through Friday, they're having these meetings. And actually tonight there's a consecration service, which I was going to be at, but because family in town things we're doing, I'm not going to be there. But uh, they have that. It's... it's um, at, I believe, um, well, I'll get, if, if you want to go, let me know and I'll get the location for you. But uh, Thursday, I will be speaking at the one that's at Perkins um, uh, location, which is, uh, I think, 18th Avenue South and 19th Street uh, South. Um, and our worship team will be leading the worship in that one. So, um, encourage you to all be there. Our community group, that is going to be our event for the week. We're not having our regular Wednesday night meeting. We're going to be there for those that can. Uh, yes, it's outside. Bring water. They'll have water there, but, you know, maybe an umbrella, whatever it is you want to, to have. Bug spray, my wife says, yes, that might be important. So uh, be reminded of that. But a great way for us to practice and pursue gospel unity, which is one of our priorities here as a church. And if you would... Turn to Ephesians 5. Uh, We'll read uh, beginning in verse 21 and go through chapter 6 and verse 9. And that is our text today. We're in a series, Imagining the Kingdom. And the subtitle for this, which is actually message number 15 in the series, is God's Subversive Ways of Power. God's Subversive Ways of Power. And I do want to dedicate this particular message to those members of my community group who mocked me the other week when I said I usually preach much longer sections like chapters instead of a couple of verses. And so here we go. We're crossing a chapter and we're going to um, uh, cover a a lengthy section. Um, Yeah, yeah, likewise. Yes, we won't mention any names, Ashley. Um, So um, join with me in reading. And I'll be reading from the NIV, I believe it is. (coughs) So. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word, And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. But 
um, they feed and care for their, uh, I'm sorry, after all, back up, I jumped a line. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will uh, leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not treat them, or do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, uh, uh, and that he who is both their, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. I'm just glad I don't talk for a living. Um, be terrible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to come to your word. Most importantly, Lord, challenge our hearts with that very truth or truths, those truths with which you intended to challenge the hearts of the Ephesian church through the pen of Paul. Help us to understand the challenge they received so that we might be challenged in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for those who pay attention to what text comes up in our series, maybe you're, you know, you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, you know what's coming next, or maybe those who uh, get the email that I send out on Saturdays uh, of a sermon preview, which you can, if you don't have that and you want it, you can get it, just scan the thing in the notes. I have it right ab- uh, above the questions at the end of the notes to, to get that. But maybe you saw this week's text, and well, well, maybe some aren't here because they saw this week's text, that's possible. Um, or maybe you saw it and you uh, had a mixture of emotions. Um, uh, and as you anticipate a sermon on these verses, some might think, oh no, am I going to get pounded over my head with the Bible and told to submit to my husband? Um, and you kind of have a sort of PTSD in response to this text. Uh, some may just feel sorry for me having to deal with these verses, which I appreciate your sympathy. I'll <laughs> take all I can get. Um, um, <clears throat> And, 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 and then some might get excited thinking about all the people they know that need to hear these verses, especially their wife, their children, and their slaves. Oh, wait, we don't have those anymore. <clears throat> Others may simply find this a litmus test for discovering if the pastor has given up on biblical inerrancy and become a liberal. God forbid. Um, well, I think we are all aware that abusive fathers and slave masters in the past, uh, husbands in the presence, uh, have used texts like these to justify horrendous evil. And I I don't think we can go on to teach these verses without reckoning with that, that. That that's a reality. And so 
we have to be aware that that has occurred, that people can use text to abuse others. And certainly that has been done with this text and other uh, kinds of texts that, that are uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, I can assure you that that was never Paul's intention in writing these things and what others pe- people do for evil. If, if he hadn't written it, they'd have found something else to justify their behavior. So I'm so, by no means blaming the text itself in saying that. And while we should learn from these examples, on the one hand, we, we can't use the worst examples of humanity alone to form our position about these verses. They, they need to inform it, but not that alone about these verses. On the other hand, I think Wendell Berry may be correct when he observes about modern marriage and its view of one's rights, quote, Marriage, in what is evidently the most popular version, is now, on the one hand, an intimate relationship involving, ideally, two successful careerists in the same bed, and on the other hand, a sort of private political system in which rights and interests must be constantly asserted and defended. Marriage, in other words, has now taken the form of divorce, a prolonged and impassioned negotiation on how things shall be divided. And and I think he's probably close to the point. But to put it simply, I think what he's saying is that the modern marriage desperately needs a dose of mutual submission. At a conference, probably, my memory is right, late 90s, maybe 2000, but somewhere in there, early 2000s at the latest, I heard a highly respected theologian, a man, if I said his name, anyone who spent more than 20 minutes studying systematic theology would know his name. Um, and he was speaking at this particular conference, and he, he began to explain that despite what verse 20 appears to say, submit to one another out of reverence for, to Christ, that the verses that follow could not mean that each party needs to submit to the other. He explained that there are texts in the Bible which say they were killing one another, and that could not mean that person A killed person B, and then person B got up and killed person A, because, of course, person B is already dead. So he suggested that there uh, are three examples of submitting to one another in the text that follows, where wives submit to husbands, children to parents, and slaves to their masters. After all, we could not expect Paul to tell masters to submit to their slaves. To be honest, I initially accepted this argument because of my confirmation bias. I mean, it, it, it confirmed what I already thought about the text, more or less. But the plain meaning of the text haunted me. I mean, I just couldn't get away from the fact that the text does not appear to say what he was saying. The more I looked at these verses, the less I believed his explanation. And I do think Paul is doing just what we could not expect. He is telling masters to submit to their slaves. Now, we'll get to that before we're done today, but he is, in fact, doing that. And if we miss that, we miss the point of the text. But we'll get to that in time. Now, I did lightly touch on verses 15 through 20 last week in my conclusion, and very lightly, to be sure. I, 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 I danced around them, and, and I'm going to go back to these verses next week when we explore chapter 6 and verse 10 and, and what follows. I was actually tempted to preach chapter 6 and verse 10 and what follows first, and then come back and preach the text that I'm preaching today. I was tempted because I think we have to understand this text in light of that text, and of course the sequence makes that a little more difficult, but keep in mind, I guess, that, that everything from chapter 4 verse 17 through chapter 6, verse 9, say something about how the church engages in spiritual warfare. 
That is the broader thing which is then summed up in, in, in those verses. In approaching our text this morning, I believe we need to pay attention to three things. I think we need to pay attention to our hearts. I think we need to pay attention to context. And I think we need to pay attention to God's perspective. And so I want to look at those three things. We'll probably spend most time on the latter two to be sure, but uh, pay attention to our hearts, pay attention to context, and pay attention to God's perspective. So first, pay attention to our hearts. There is plenty of vitriol in the hearts of many in the church over the correct understanding of these verses. Of course, plenty of people think the correct understanding is different than the other people think, but there is vitriol nonetheless. Earlier this year, when Senator Ben Sass was departing the Senate, frustrated over the inability of people of different political opinions to debate in a civil manner, without demonizing one's opponents and vilifying their motives, he described in the Wall Street Journal what he believes the problem is in our nation today. That the defining battle of our time isn't between Democrats and Republicans, but between pluralists and zealots. Civic pluralists, and now I'm quoting him from the Wall Street Journal, civic pluralists understand that ideas move the world more than power does, which is why pluralists value debate And persuasion, this part is key, he says, we believe America is great because it is good, and America is good because the country is committed to human dignity, even for those with whom we disagree, end quote. The church could learn a lesson here. You see, it isn't just the Senate or even the realm of politics where this problem exists. There are plenty of people who love Jesus, the Scriptures, that think differently about these verses than you do, or I do. And we can't demonize them if they think differently about them than we do. It's okay to have different opinions about them, to be sure, as long as we can love each other while claiming to love Jesus. Unity is not the same as sameness not the same thing. We can be united without being, thinking the same about everything. For some, conversation about verses like these in the Bible are about holding on to a form of culture rooted not in biblical times, but in a nostalgic imagination of what life once was like in more recent history. I say imagination because I really don't think life ever was that way, <laughs> but we imagine it was that way. It's how we tell the story. And anyone who gives an inch on these verses has gotten on the slippery slope of theological liberalism and is about to fall in the river and drown. Or at least that's how we tell the story. It's as if our families are at stake. As if all those who held tightly to a very conservative view of these verses have never wavered in their commitment to family and love, facts and marital affairs notwithstanding. While Scripture is without error, to be sure, our beliefs about how to understand what it says, have plenty of room for for differences because we don't agree on what it means, even if we agree that what it says is without error. And in this case, on both sides of the issue, I think that applies. I, I think we should be more concerned about love for one another that has already been forsaken in those debates many times than afraid of what might be lost if somebody holds to a opinion. 
others in their approach sometimes um, seem more committed to their assumption of what it can't mean than of speak, Lord, for your servant listens. In other words, if I arrive and I've already ruled out anything, it can't mean this, it can't mean this, it can't mean this, well, then I'm not letting the text speak. I'm so committed to these assumptions that I won't let the text say anything to me about those. It's got to say something else. Rather, we should come say and speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Neither a believer's commitment to absolute equality nor to conservative values can uh, exceed our allegiance to Christ and His Word. Amen? We must pay attention to our hearts because we love to be right. Now, maybe you don't know anyone that loves to be wife, but my wife uh, sure knows somebody who loves to be right. I mean, she does. She's met him up close and personal. I've seen people passionately in one camp on a text like this, and they change their mind, and they're just as zealous, if not more, in the other camp. In reality, nothing has changed but their opinion. Their heart hasn't changed. My perspective on these verses has certainly adjusted over the years, and I know that in ten years, if not five, I will think a bit differently about them than I do today. Wendell Berry, again, suggests the true remedy for mistakes is to keep from making them. I, I, I wish I could, but I'm not quite smart enough yet to keep from making them, so I'll just have to keep adjusting as I go. Two key reasons I call myself Reformed. When somebody asks, are you Reformed? Yes. And there's two key reasons I call myself Reformed. The first is that I believe the Protestants were right in protesting the Catholic Church of that time. I was raised a Catholic after all, and I am now a Protestant. So I believe in the Reformation, so I am Reformed. The second reason I am Reformed is, uh, at least second most important reason, is I believe in the Reformed cry of Semper Reformanda, always being Reformed. It's often said always reforming, which isn't quite true. Um, we're not always reforming others. It's always being reformed. I'm the one who <laughs> needs to be reformed, and we are the ones who need to be reformed. The church needs to be reformed, and we personally need to be reformed, but I don't need to necessarily go out reforming everybody. That's a different thing altogether. Um, if the church looked exactly like the reformed church of the 16th century, it would not truly be reformed, but stuck. There's a difference. The Reformers didn't think they had it all right, and they would loathe to see a church doing everything identically to what they did in the 16th century. Now, on the other hand, if the church is truly Reformed, it doesn't mean we disregard what those before us have attained. We pay attention to those who came before us in humility and allow them to speak what is often called the democracy of the dead, very important democracy. So we must pay attention to our hearts when approaching these verses. We must be humble. And we must pay attention to context. There's more than one kind of context to be kept in mind. There's scriptural context. What comes before it or after it. It's setting in the whole letter. It's placed in the broad storyline of scripture. And there's cultural context. The world into which it was written. I read a story recently that I think helps illustrate the importance of understanding culture. Uh, It's a bit graphic, so forgive me, um, but I I guess we'll call that uh, fair warning. 
if, it, if that could be so considered. Um, he was in Okinawa researching a proposal uh, that was requested by the chief of staff of the army. And he says this, he says, As we were driving along one of the back roads of Okinawa one day, a small child ran out in, directly in front of the car. We screeched to a stop, barely missing him. We trembled with anxiety and horror at the terrible injury we had almost caused. The boy's mother, a young Okinawan woman, standing by the side of the road, looked at us and giggled. Smiling and giggling still, she went out on the road and collected her son. We experienced a wave of the most intense fury at her. Here we were, trembling at what we might have done to her child, and she was giggling as if she didn't even care. How could she be so callous? Again, I'm quoting GD Orientals, they don't care about human life, even that their own even that of their own children. We'd like to smash her with the car and see how she feels about it. It was only after we had driven away a few miles down the road that we became calm enough to reflect on the fact that when they are embarrassed or frightened, Okinawans invariably smile and giggle. The woman had been just as frightened as we were, but we had misinterpreted her behavior. Culture matters. It matters a great deal. You've often heard the expression, the Bible is God's love letter to you, right? That's fine as far as it goes, but I think we have to be a little careful there because it's actually not God's love letter to you. For instance, this was a letter to the Ephesians, not you. And if you want it to speak to you like God's love letter, you first have to recognize that it wasn't first that, that it's speaking into a cultural context of that time to that people in that language. So if we want to understand it as God's word for us today, we have to allow that to come through that and travel 2,000 years and get to us. And that does take work, to be sure. Paul is a Jewish man writing to the church in Ephesus, a capital city of the Asian province and a city under Roman law. So much of that has to be taken into account. And what he says is clear enough, but what he means must be understood in that context, just like that woman's laugh and giggle had to be understood in a different context than uh, Peck's own context. And the scriptural context, I mentioned it earlier. Our text follows immediately on the hills, uh, heels of our call to live as children of light in a dark world. To live as wise rather than unwise, which clearly is spiritual wisdom, the wisdom of the cross. We have to live that way. To not get drunk with wine when we gather to celebrate, but be filled with the Spirit, singing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then it is followed by the reminder that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Recall the controlling metaphor of this whole letter is adoption. We've been adopted as God's sons and daughters in Christ Jesus and have an inheritance. We have a role in God's household as adopted sons. That's the whole point of Roman adoption. A Roman household includes husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. Rome had codes for how people were to behave, which were considered integral to the empire's social fabric. But the church is under the kingship of Jesus Christ. How do they live? You see, this isn't a Roman household, the church. It's God's household. 
Do we completely disregard conventions? Do we just disregard them entirely? And then there's the issue of Roman household codes. Many commentaries will inform us of the fact that here and in the other places, Colossians or Peter in 1 Peter, when they, they bring up these relationships and how to act in marriage and with children and with slaves, that those are uh, mirrored on the Roman household uh, codes. That, as some commentators would tell the story, that, that Paul realizes that he has to teach the, the church how to live, and so he just copies Roman household codes and informs the church of how they should live because he doesn't want to do anything contrary to the empire in that. Well, I, I say that that's mostly Tommy Rot. Um, he does, in fact, use the form of Roman household codes, but he completely turns them upside down. And we have to recognize that to understand what's going on in our text. When we read these verses, in light of Roman household codes, we discover that Paul was being subversive. By no means does he suggest they disregard Roman household codes. That would be considered sedition and would have made the church a direct threat to the empire. The church was, in fact, in a war, but not against the earthly people or leaders of the empire, rather against the spiritual powers behind it and its oppression. The church, like Christ, will fight using the powers of the age to come. Love, humility, patience, kindness. That is how we fight. Now, here's where Paul's words differ dramatically from Roman household codes. That's kind of hard to say too many times in a row. Roman household codes never addressed wives, children, or slaves. They were considered to have no volition of their own. They could not choose to do anything. They were, in a Roman culture, powerless. Certainly, there were exceptions when it came to wives, but they were just that. They were rare exceptions. In the general populace, there was no power for a wife, a child, or a slave. The very fact that Paul addresses them and addresses them first in each set. He dresses wives before husbands, children before parents, slaves before masters. The very fact that he addresses them and addresses them first is significant. It is not seditious, but it is subversive. Now, I know that if you look up those two words in the dictionary, they essentially have the same meaning. Um, but... Uh, if you, if you look at Wikipedia, you'll discover a, a difference in, in how they're understood. Um, there we discover that um, the connotations of the two words are rather different. Sedition, suggesting overt attacks on institutions. Subversion, something much more uh, surreptitious, such as eroding the basis of belief in the status quo. So, I'm using that subtle distinction between the words when I say it wasn't sedition. It wasn't an overt act but it was uh, uh, subversive in that it, it, it un- undermined the thinking behind the way things were, were done. It changed how we thought about these things. Paul understands that kingdoms are conquered by ideas and actions from the bottom up, people changing the story by which they live. Paul was giving power to wives, children, and slaves. He was giving them volition. Legally, they had none. They had no choice, but Paul said, no, you choose. What do I do? I choo- you choose, submit yourself, better word, a little bit less used, 
subordinate yourself. In other words, the word meant to place yourself under, which assumes that you aren't naturally under, that you actually can choose to do or not do, and he's telling you to choose to do. You follow that? So subordinate yourself to your husbands. Subordinate yourself to your parents. Subordinate yourself, well, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. But in other texts, it's th- that same idea is carried through. Now, you might think, what's the big deal? Well, in a world which we have so many rights, this seems like it's semantics. But in, a world, in that world, it was power disguised as weakness, just like the cross. It was power disguised as weakness, just like the cross. You know, I mean, a lot of people were crucified in the time that Jesus was crucified. So one could argue that Jesus was simply defeated by Rome. But what we as Christians believe is that, no, actually, he conquered Rome by dying on a cross that they put him on. <laughs> huh? How does that work? Well, that takes a sanctified imagination, too, doesn't it? And it takes a resurrection from the dead, to be sure. Um, well, Paul is inviting all of us to join in the play. Wives, children, slaves, and yes, also, as we'll see, husbands, parents, and masters. Well, there's Paul's Jewish context, which is relevant. Paul was indeed a Roman citizen, and he was also thoroughly Jewish and knew Jewish scriptures as well as anyone in that day knew them. When Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands as you do to the Lord, in verse 22, and then in verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything, we must ask how a biblically immersed Jewish man would understand how the church is called to submit to the Lord. How would Paul, a Jewish man completely immersed with Scripture, how would he understand how the church or how the people of God Israel, because remember in chapter 1 through 3 he just talked about how the church has been adopted in through Jesus Christ and we are now have citizenship in Israel. So how would Israel, how would the Jews, how would the church be taught to submit to the Lord? Well, Paul was pretty smart because he, he knew the answer to that. <laughs> he knew that the book of Psalms is all about the people of God and their relationship with Yahweh. And throughout the Old Testament, that relationship was compared to marriage. And guess what? In the New Testament, actually right here in the book of Ephesians, in our text, that relationship is compared to marriage. And so, back in, what was it, 2018, I think, I did a, an entire marriage retreat based on the book of Psalms. Seems like an odd place to go for a marriage retreat, right? It's a prayer book. Why are we, why are we doing that? Well, being the prayer book of the Bible, it's all about how God's people are to communicate with God in their relationship, which is a marriage, metaphorically. The Psalms, therefore, are the ideal picture of how the church is to submit to Christ. Now, one doesn't have to read the Psalms long to realize that it is scandalous at times, that if that's submission, one might wonder what non-submission is. I mean... There are times when the people of God tell God to wake up, get off his duff, and do something. There are times when we are allowed to plead with him about how long it will take him to get things done. There are times when we are allowed to question him. And In truth, the Psalms display the entire spectrum of communication necessary for a successful marriage, from praise and admiration to what in the world do you think you're doing? Get off your butt. So I personally think that the Psalms are one of the best places to go for a marriage retreat because it teaches us how to communicate with each other 
based on the ultimate marriage, which is our relationship to God. So when Paul says, as you do to the Lord and as the church submits to Christ, these phrases are themselves subversive to the Roman understanding of the issue. Paul speaks similarly when addressing children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And slaves, obey your earthly masters just as you would obey Christ. So we must pay attention to our hearts. We must pay attention to context. And we must pay attention to God's perspective, his upside-down view of power. God doesn't view power the same way you and I view power. And we must pay attention to that. To understand most of the New Testament, and for that matter the Bible, we must understand God's perspective on power or God's upside-down view of power. I, I think, I mean, I didn't really think about this. It was, it was a default assumption, kind of this, I, I didn't form this opinion, I just kind of had this opinion when I started reading my Bible, that, that Christ humbling himself, his becoming lowly instead of become, coming in a palace and like a king was more or less only because of our sin and, and, and it would work in contrast to human ways of power. You know, when people use wealth and might to accomplish their way, so God comes and uses the poor and the weak to display His glory. And, and it's, as far as it goes, it's relatively true, but I think God's view of power is what existed before the fall, before creation. And I think we see plenty of examples of that. Um, you see, the fall was humans, humanity's rejection of God's way of ruling. And if you study the first chapter of Genesis and even into the second chapter, you realize that God was a servant king from the get-go. He prepared the world to provide for his creatures, which stood in direct contrast with the story of the cultures around them, wherein the gods created humans to garden the world to feed him. Vastly different than the biblical story where God created a world before there were any humans and prepared a garden to feed them. He's a servant king. And, and so humility, Jesus humbled himself and, and, and took on flesh and lived in poverty and all those things he did because he was God who had become flesh. And that's what God would do when he became flesh. And, and so it wasn't that God had some big change because of the fall. It's just that we rejected his way of doing things. Uh, God's ways have always been that greatness is in serving. He has always been the servant king. Humility has always been the power in his kingdom. Paul calls for the church, God's adopted household, to take on his view of power and what he says to the powerless, wives, children, and slaves, but also in what he says to the powerful in relationships in their culture, husbands, fathers, and masters. Power in God's household functions in an entirely different way than power in Rome or American households. Paul is calling husbands, fathers, and masters to mutually submit to their wives, children, and slaves, um, no matter how absurd that may seem. Remember, this is the same God who shed his blood for us, not the other way around. So, Husbands, exercise power over your wives in this way. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, there's a lot we could cover in these verses that I obviously don't have time to cover. My goal here is to say, how is he changing how they imagine power to work in God's household? And that's what I'm focused on.
Just as Christ loved the church. Just as Christ submitted himself to the cross, to death, but ultimately because he submitted himself to God. To, to have power in God's kingdom is to lay down our lives. It isn't about getting our way. If submission, subordination seems hard, certainly any serious consideration of going to the cross would seem even more difficult. And yet, yes, wives are called to submit or subordinate themselves. Husbands are called to lay down their lives just like Jesus going to the cross. I don't know that we could argue that one is harder than the other. They sound a whole lot like the same thing to me at the end of the day. Fathers, exercise power in this way. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That word exasperate in the, in the NIV, in, in the ESV, it's provoked to anger. It's, it's one word in Greek. It's, it's a verb, but it, it literally means to provoke to wrath, to provoke to rage. So anger's good, but that, and that's fine, but... Um, it's that same word. You remember back in chapter 2, we've talked a lot about this in verse 3 where it says, we were by nature children of rage, wrath, rage. And put away from you all anger, rage. It's that same word that's the root of this word in a verb that, that do not provoke them to rage um, that's there. So if the adopted children of God are no longer to be children of rage, then certainly the fathers within that household cannot provoke the children to rage. That would just be a natural consequence of that. In a Roman household, that would never have been a consideration. Legally, a Roman father of a household could put to death members of the household without repercussion. Even if it wasn't often done, they had that right. So, provoking them to wrath, that's peanuts in the grand scheme of things but not in the God's household. He gets right down to the heart. Don't even utter, you fool. Much like, do not murder? Right. Don't say, you fool. It, Jesus' kingdom works in a very different way. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. F.F. F. Bruce is right to say that, quote, the, the training and instruction of the Lord would involve Christ's example with due regard to His meekness and gentleness. Referencing 2 Corinthians 10.1. As well as putting into practice his precepts. See, earlier in this letter, Paul encourages us to put on the new anthropos, the new man, the new human. And that is certainly in mind in how a father is instructed to act toward his children. Again, as Bruce points out, children will more readily learn these lessons, the instructions of Christ, if the parents themselves show the way by following Christ's example and practicing his precepts. That's the training and instruction of the Lord. And then masters. After instructing slaves how to act toward their masters, Paul says, and masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Did you catch that? (laughs) I mean, it's just right there on the page. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Literally, that masters, treat your slaves in the same way, it could be read, and lords, do the same things to them. So he just gets through telling 
slaves, how they are to obey their masters. And then he says, oh, masters, do the same things to them. Huh? Of course, we could never expect Paul to tell masters to submit to their slaves. Well, actually, we can. Because he, in fact, did. You say that's absurd. Yeah, I know. That's the point. It's utterly absurd. Paul bases such a preposterous idea on the fact that we both have the same Lord, and to him, neither of us has higher standing. And considering what our Lord did for us, it should come as no surprise. He's our Lord, and he shed his blood for us. Everything about this kingdom is backward. The first are last, the last are first. I think if we're going to understand this text rightly, and I'm not saying I've arrived at it, but if we are going to understand it rightly, we have to understand that it's about undoing our perspectives on power. Completely undoing our perspectives on both power and weakness. Lack of power, if you will. Powerlessness. Paul had no power to abolish slavery legally, nor did he ever think he should. But he taught believers to live in such a way that it would be functionally abolished in the church. God's kingdom manifest as a foretaste of the age to come. The messianic king Christ reigns. Here's what it looks like. It looks like slaves obeying your masters out of respect for the Lord. And, oh, by the way, masters, you do the same thing to them. Because why? Because you're brothers? Because you have the same master? It looks like wives subordinating themselves to their husbands. And, oh, by the way, husbands, lay down your life as sacrificially as anyone could possibly do, as Christ loved the church, for your wife. completely transforms the dynamics. I don't think the binary options of do these verses apply today or not allows for a proper understanding of them. Because on the one hand we say, well, they apply. Well, of course, yes, but how do they apply? They don't apply. Well, wait a minute, you just threw out part of God's Word. So I think we have to ask, how do they apply? I think... What I've said about them could be both satisfying and dissatisfying to people on each side of the debate because Paul didn't intend to answer our modern questions. I hope I've upended our thinking about these things for that is what I think it did to the first century recipients. And I think it's what it intends to do today is to upend our, modern, our, our, our thinking about power and its dynamics. Its purpose is not to preserve the social order, but to transform it into the kingdom of light's social order. Mutual submission is merely another way of saying that regardless of your relative positional power in society, imitate Christ who humbled himself and made others more valuable than himself. And that will never go out of date. That does not pass away. Because that's gospel culture. That's the kingdom culture which we are intended to experience and live out in our lives. It is the foolish ways of God that are wiser than human wisdom. And such foolishness is the wisdom of God and the power of God. There are a lot of opportunities for any of us in positions of power. Whether business owners or school principals or independently wealthy people to submit ourselves to those who are in positions of weakness. 
It will take some sanctified imagination, kingdom imagination, to do so. For those of us in weakness to actively place ourselves under others as to the Lord, rather than merely accepting our lot in life, that takes imagination too. How do I actively choose to subordinate myself to others when the culture says I have no power to do otherwise? In Christ, I can do it. And therein is power. Realizing that on both sides of that equation, whether you're the powerful or the weak, realizing it is key to understanding spiritual warfare, but more on that next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have been adopted into your family. And the rules of your household are different than the rules of our culture and what it says about households. The rules of power are rather different, completely different. Lord Jesus, transform us, I pray. Teach us, I pray. Give us the wisdom of the cross. For that is the strategy needed for success in the spiritual war that we participate in. In Jesus' name, amen.